Like raising funds for charity, fighting for diversity, inclusion, dispelling myths and illusions, raising health awareness, tremendous conscious athletes, marathoners and triathletes, making a difference, combating ignorance. Mm. Behind the wheel, you know the deal. Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Wheel. I'm your host, Derek Babyox, Baby D Rock, D Livingstone. Oh, and today we are not behind the wheel. I got to hurry up and get out of here before my sister uh, comes and invades her space. We are here in our satellite location in Bridgeport, Connecticut, live with my man, Mr. Charlie Dark. How are you doing today, sir? I'm very good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Apparently, I don't know how to tell time and translate it from uh, the U.S. to the United Kingdom. You are, you are now early, my friend. I'm an hour early. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> How are you doing today, sir? I'm really, really good, man. And it's it's a real pleasure to speak to you. Oh man, oh, the pleasure is all mine. I I I'm a huge follower of of you. It's been years. It's like, tag on. If, <laughs> I know, if if you guys can see behind, you definitely see the the record collection. That's 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 there. Those are those are forty fives, right? No, those are those are twelve inch discs. Those are 12 inches, but then all of that is 45s. Oh, jeez. And when you thought you had a record collection, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Are you still are you still collecting records? I am still collecting. Not as much as before, but I'm being a bit more selective about what I buy. Mm-hmm. So obviously now I don't sample anymore. So I'm not buying records just for samples. Okay, you're just playing them and enjoying the the sounds. Yeah, so now at the moment what I'm collecting, I went through a period of collecting dancehall records. Mm-hmm. And I went, I like, I've got like 17,000 dancehall records. Like, you know, dance, that's dancehall alone. I, I went mad on that. You know, mm-hmm. cause that's, a, that's, a, that's an era of music that reggae collectors don't really collect. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the UK, a lot of that music is being thrown away. A lot of, when the sound system's closed down, there's no one who will take the records. So I was kind of rescuing collections from sound systems for a while. Wow. And now I'm just kind of collecting a lot of spiritual jazz records because all those records that I could never afford when I first started listening to jazz, you can now get them. Mm-hmm. You know? So those are the two obsessions. Oh, man. Yes, sir. So you, I, 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 I can't say I found you, but I became aware of you um, when I started running and... I'm like, who is this guy with the biker cap in <laughs> London? What is the, what is this run them crew? What who is this? Like, so tell for the for those of us in the audience who may not be familiar with you, um, yeah. yeah, tell us your origin story, man. Well, I I, I you know I grew up in London. Mm-hmm. I'm from Ghana, West Africa. You know, I was born in the 70s. Um, grew up in South London, mm-hmm. which is important to the story because you know. Years ago, back in London in the 70s and 80s, London was really divided into like four areas. And so north, east, south and west. And you could really Mm -hmm. tell the person was from by the way they dressed, by the way they walked, by the way they spoke. Mm -hmm. Um, That's obviously now very different where, you know, London's like this big, massive jigsaw puzzle, you know, that's kind of divided by postcodes. So the landscape of London has changed a lot. But I grew up in London, got into the music industry in the early 90s, mm-hmm. was signed to Moax Records under the moniker Attica Blues. So I was making a lot of records when, you know, when Porter's Head first came out, Tricky, you know, Massive Attack, um, signed to Moax, and then got signed to Sony Records with the band as well and had a big deal with them. So we, we got signed when, like, Destiny's Child got signed in the Fugees. And- okay. So I had this whole kind of, you know, music making career and then started DJing internationally as well. And, you know, just kind of got to around 2003, we'd been dropped by Sony. We kind of lost our record deal. The music, the recording side of music was kind of very disillusioned with it, you know. And um, it all kind of coincided with a couple of things like the rise of the laptop made, meant that people didn't need to make music in rec- recording studios anymore, you know. so. What happened is 
people were making music on laptops, so the studio started closing down. And then people started getting traveling. Traveling as a DJ became a real thing. Mm-hmm. So all of your friends, you, like, you never saw them. They, you'd just be following them around the world. Like arriving a week later, you'd, like, you'd read the wall of the dressing room and it'd be like, King Brit was here. You'd be like, oh, okay, so that's where you were, you know. Okay. So it was the idea of running was, for myself, it was like trying to, kind of waking up one day and realizing that I'd acquired all this stuff, all these material items that I'd aspired to. And they weren't making me happy anymore. Mm. I needed to find. I needed to find myself again. And and running was like a way of escaping everyone, you know, and everything. It was kind of I could turn my phone off and go and run. Mm. And um, I started running in the day night time because I was just so embarrassed to be seen running in the day. <laughs> that time I was working as a school teacher. I was like teaching poetry and creative writing in a lot of kind of inner city schools in London and. They were really tough schools filled with tough kids. And, you know, you didn't want to see those kids seeing you suffering, running around the park. Like, <laughs> that yeah. would not work well in the classroom. That wouldn't be a good look, huh? <laughs> that was so not a good look. So I basically started kind of running at night and, you know, and it was a way, this idea of kind of like, how can I bring my friends together? And more importantly, how can I keep them alive? Because, you know, mm. a lot of my friends in the music industry were beginning to die. You know, suddenly it was like, People who you thought were invincible were now getting sick, you know, and I like my creative friends around me because I like, you know, I like the music they make. I like the art they make. I like the energy they give out. So I was just like, look, you know, we've got to do something. And the Olympics were on their way to London. And that's the kind of final part of the jigsaw. It was kind of, you know, there was all this talk of how the Olympics will come and it will leave a legacy in the city after it leaves. Mm -hmm. And my thing was like, you know, London doesn't exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't cool to be seen running. Yeah, why is why why is that? Because because we didn't have an exercise culture in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, people would go to the gym, but generally, the people you knew who went to the gym were either people who had money or criminals and roughnecks that you didn't really want to hang around with. You know, the gym was an intimidating place to go. There were no boutique gyms, you know. Mm-hmm. This idea of like, oh, it's a boutique gym and we're giving you a free towel and like, you know, a <laughs> tape and finish. Like, you go into like the, you know, the weightlifters, hardcore gym, brothers would be in there just locking the place down. Like, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm not going to the gym. I started, so, so I started running at night. And I was like, look, you know, if the Olympics come to my neighbourhood and leave, and people don't use the facilities, what's going to happen is this, this area is going to fall into, you know, decay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it was, you know, I live in East London, and so it's like an area that was going through gentrification, but it was kind of like, I was like, there's no real community here. There's like a lot of disparate communities that are very not connected, and then there's all these new people who've moved in who, like, don't know how to speak to people that they've displaced. Mm-hmm. You know, because, like, if you buy a two million pound house in like an area that like before no one wanted to live in and there's a group of kids that used to sit on your doorstep, when you move in, the first thing you're asking them to do is move. You're not baking any cakes for them in your argo cooker. No. You know, you're not bringing out drinks for them. Like that thing of like, let me introduce myself to my neighbours in my neighbourhood. I'm the new guy. Like, that doesn't exist anymore. So run and crew was this idea of like bringing all these things together and the final part is like, I just knew a lot of kids who were like, they needed help. They needed some mentoring. They needed to meet some people who were not like them, mm-hmm. you know. And they needed to be able to move from one area of London to another safely. Because whereas when I was growing up, London was divided into four areas, you know, now London is literally divided into streets. And so you have situations where kids like, they won't cross the road because that, that's a next person's territory. It's like the Warriors in London right now. Wow. You know, we've, we've had, like, knife crime is out of control. It's, if you're a teenager and you're living in the UK right now, life is deep for you right now. It's hard. Mm. You know? So, Roman Crew is a way of, like, bringing younger generation together with the older generation, you know, keeping my friends alive, doing something for my community, and trying to find myself. 
Uh, you know, and, it, and we called it Rundown Crew because we just wanted to have the most unrunning club name that we could find. <laughs> you know, because you know, because again, this is this idea that runners looked a certain way when I first started running. Yeah. You know, black dudes who looked like us were not out in the street running around like sports gear. People weren't walking through Shoreditch with like yoga mats. It wasn't, you know, people weren't on Instagram posting their workouts. There was no Instagram. Mm-mm. Like, people thought you were odd if you ate healthily and went, you know, and took care of your body. You were like, why are you doing that? You know, we come out of an era where it was all about partying to the excess. Mm. So anyway, that's, the, you know, that's the synopsis short of Run Them Through and how that all began. And, and so there was this dark period for you. Yeah, super dark. Because, you know... I was in the music industry heavily in the 90s mm-hmm. when people were making amazing amounts of money and it was all new. And I was in the golden era where it was like, you literally, you made a demo in, a be- in your bedroom and then the next week you got signed and you were working on an SSL desk. You know, you literally went from bedroom demo, oh, you got some talent, brilliant, great, we're going to sign you, we're going to give you a fact check and we're putting you in Metropolis Studios and now you're using the Dr. Dre desk. You know, it's kind of like, and so, and then you then you start DJing internationally, so then you're flying around the world, and then you're in this weird kind of music industry world where it's like this hyper-real world that's not real, because the amount of money that people are making is unreal, and the way it's spent is unreal, and the type of people you meet are kind of weird characters. <laughs> and I realized it was like called the music industry, and the music business, because it is a business and industry. I just thought it was music. Mm-hmm. music so suddenly you wake up like when you go from a big major label deal and you really feel like I'm about to blow like this is the one mm-hmm. suddenly like I think Sade delivered her album late that year to Sony and the trickle down effect was kind of like you know like the biggest selling artists had not delivered their album on time so now we're, we're sucking all these subsidiary labels down so we got dropped, and it was like it was a really big wake-up call because my whole life had been about becoming a DJ and making records, you know, and being a pop star. That's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I had a glimpse of it, you know. I had a firm glimpse of that. Like, like I had a G wagon. I was driving a G wagon in London when people would see me driving my car and think I was driving a tank. Uh-huh. Just didn't see them. People didn't even know what it was, you know. And that all fell apart around me. You know, and I, I kind of just woke up one day feeling really alone. And the depression kicked in. It was like, you know, it was kind of super dark. It was a super dark period of time. So running again was a way of being like, like I don't want to take medication and wait to be happy. You know, because that's like, you know, culturally, that's not something that you do. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know. And sit down and talk to someone. Yeah, you know, so... So, you know, my thing was like, okay, well, let me start running just like, to see if that works. You know, because I ran when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I ran a lot. Okay. You know, so, so I had the running was in my blood. I just neglected it for 20 years while I went to my music. Mm-hmm. So now you had this quote. I think it's really important for people to fail. Yes. Speak to that. It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, failing is one of the most important lessons that you can learn. And unfortunately, I think as children, what happens is we are not encouraged to fail, you know, because everything that is presented in front of us in our informative years is about succeeding. So if you think about even starting this idea of starting to walk, your parents are like, okay, you, you know what I mean? It's like, you, just, you just arrived, but you've got to start walking. You know what I mean? It's like there's these stuff that you've got to start doing, you know? And so people don't learn how to fail because failure brings laughter in public, you know. Failure brings weakness. Mm. And so basically what you find is like a lot of people, you know, are just uncomfortable with the idea of failing. And so because they think that basically once you fail, then that's the end, that you'll never get another chance again. Yeah. You know, and so... For me, it's kind of like some people come from my own classes. It's like, you know, I, I specialize in teaching absolute beginners. They come in, they want to go into handstand straight away. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, you it's know, like you want to make shapes straight away. Like, 
let's make all the pretty shapes. I can take a picture of myself, put it on Instagram, like I'm a yogi now. I'm like, no, it's, you know, it's different. I'm going to have to fall out of tree pose a few times before, you know. So you, you mentioned yoga, but before we get to yoga, though, how, yeah. how did you make the transition from, you, you've, you, you've come out of this dark period, Yeah. you're running, and then you say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm done with run them crew. I think I'm going to hang up my kicks and I'm going to walk away. There's some... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a case of walking away. It was a case of, I got injured. Mm. You know, I, so basically, the thing about running is you can go from being terrible to being good in 16 weeks. You can take a non, you have not run ever in your life. Mm-hmm. 26 weeks, you know, 16 weeks later, you're running a marathon. Like, you're running these unfathomable distances that you wouldn't even drive. Like, if someone said to you now, yeah, there's like, you know, there's a bagel shop, but it's 25 miles away. 26 nah, miles away. <laughs> like, I'm not driving that. We wouldn't even get on the train to go and travel that much. No, not for a bagel. Training <laughs> days to go and run it. It's so crazy. For a medal that you stick in the drawer and forget yeah. about. You know, so um, I basically was running a lot. I was like, in my golden year, I was like, the times were tumbling. It was like, I've gone, you know, like I was bossing the running. I'm running the crew. I'm working with a brand, you know, I'm working with the biggest sports brand in the world. Life is good. And, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, what do I need to stretch for? <laughs> Let me just, like, I just ran a 134 half marathon, like, do you mean, know, three hours sleep? Like, you can't talk to me. Like, my body's doing incredible things. Like, I just ran 26 miles. Like, what do you mean I'm going to get me on the floor and start stretching? I, was, I just, basically, I was doing the front end. I wasn't doing the back end because I didn't understand how my body worked. Mm-hmm. So I understand the importance of the back end. And that's the thing with a lot of runners. It's like once the times and the PB start happening, suddenly you forget. The basics. You know, when you first start running, it hurts. Like you feel it in your body. After a while, your body becomes numb to the pain. And you just accept the fact that oh, I've got tight hamstrings. Yeah, you know, I'm a runner. I've got tight hamstrings. I've got limited flexibility in my shoulders, you know. And and you just accept that because no other runners you're talking to are talking about, oh, well, actually, you know, I'm having a massage and a steam bath and this. And most travelers definitely not. They're not telling you anything that goes on in the camp. All you know is he turns up, he runs, <laughs> he wins, they pay him 100000 he goes home. Yeah. You're not hearing about the masseur, you know, the spiritual guru, you know, the, you know, the, the mental coach, the massa. You're not hearing about any of the team. And that's just the world in general. Yeah. Cut West. Just the highlights. It's just Kanye about himself. Bruv, there's a whole team of people behind <laughs> all of these people. And so as runners, or as people, you know, who are in the fitness game, who are getting inspired by Instagram, because we don't have the team, we then have to become our own team. Mm-hmm. And so I got really badly injured and, you know, as part of the recuperation, you know, yoga was recommended. And I went there simply for the fact of, like, I wasn't going there for any spiritual enlightenment, you know, I was just going for, like, let me go and do this thing for six weeks, get out, get back on the road. You know, but then it kind of started to resonate with me. I met this teacher who was an ex-DJ. And the way he broke the yoga down to me, I was just like, man, this is like a mixtape. <laughs> yeah, like, he, he reeled you in, man. It was like, you know, then we did that, and that's kind of, you know, connected to that. And it was, I just felt like I was going on this kind of like movement mixtape. And suddenly I was like, man, you know, and, and the thing is, when you go in there as Charlie Dark Rondon crew, mm-hmm. you're like, man, Charlie Dark Rondon crew, like, do you know who I am? <laughs> so you're going in there, you know, not to say that my ego was out of control because, you know, after I'd been dropped, like, that ego got squashed very quickly. But mm. I definitely was walking into that space like, yeah, I can yoga, I can do this. So I can run a half marathon in, like, you know, one hour 34. Like, cool, sure I can stand there with my hands by my head. And it was such a humbling experience that the simplest things as standing upright with your arms above your head was one of the hardest things I'd ever done in my life. I was like, my God, this is killing me. But it just started. <laughs> so anyway, so that happens, and I'm flirting with yoga. Then, you know, then my partner, you know, 
this amazing woman, you know, started a relationship with her. And she was like, you know, she's the like, back in the day, we would call her the untouchables. Mm -hmm. When you're in the club, you see that group of girls and they come in and like, there you walk across the dance floor to talk to them because they will give you the eye and just silence you with a look. But she was really into yoga. And I was just like, like, you know, first started dating and it started to really freak me out. I'm like, you're into yoga. Of all people, you're like, you know, how are you into yoga? Like, what is it about yoga that has brought you to it? She kind of starts breaking it down to me. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe I might go and check it out again. And then I got invited to um, um, a retreat by Lululemon. And they kind of invited all these kind of fitness influencers and adventurers together, and, you know, for this weekend. And I, I went reluctantly. I was like, being on a private island with 50 influencers from Instagram, no thank you. That's going to be hell. <laughs> I can just imagine what that's going to be like. And, I, you know, and my, my girlfriend has like practically pushed me onto the bus to go. We get there and it's like, you know, and this is, this is important to the story because the room is full of people who are, not, you know, they're influencers, but they're influential in really interesting ways. So, there were a group of guys who used to work as delivery drivers for Vita Coco. Okay. Coconut water. And they basically, like, you know, so I meet them and I'm like, oh man, how's, you know, how's the delivery job going? And they're like, oh, we jacked it in. And the young guys, I'm like, what do you mean? You gave up your jobs? And they're like, yeah, 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 we gave our jobs in. I'm like, what are you doing now? They're like, we're adventurers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you mean, adventurers? They're like, yeah, we jacked our jobs in and we were sitting in the pub one day. And one of them said to one, one said to the other, what have you always wanted to do? And the other one said, I've always wanted to row the Atlantic. And his friend said to him, great, let's do it. And literally, these guys are delivery guys. They have never sailed in their life. They went and had like, you know, a couple of months of sailing training. And then they asked their dad for the money. And their dad was, their dad was like, no way am I giving you the money. If you want to do it, you have to raise it yourself. They paid for the boat themselves. They managed to get a boat. They rode the Atlantic. They filmed the whole trip. They sold the content when they came back. Mm. They're content providers. And all, and all they do now is travel around the world doing adventures that they think of in the pub. So they never ridden motorbikes and then they rode to Patagonia on motorbikes after a week of motorbike lessons. <laughs> so I'm there with these dudes, you know, and there's some surfer dudes there and there's like some people who are doing some really incredible stuff so being in that environment where they're like, oh, man, you're the running crew guy, that's really cool. Because I'm used to people being like, oh, running crew, yeah, whatever. You know? So to be recognized by other people who are doing interesting things. And to find, and I met this teacher called Ryan Lear, Canadian dude, who looks like Yoda. <laughs> kind of levitates himself into the room. He's got the long beard, and he's kind of got that whole spiritual guru thing going on around him. And we start this yoga practice, and the first five minutes are so serious. And I'm just like, I'm looking at my watch like, I want to leave now. And then suddenly after five minutes, he's like, okay, everyone, take the serious yoga face off your face now. Let's start the real lesson. And then the jokes start flying in, and he starts breaking down all the poses. And suddenly I'm like, like there was literally like the air in the room, just where everyone just went, and everyone took a big, deep breath, and then we were in it. And it was like, finally I met, you know, when I met Carl, my first yoga teacher, I broke down the physical side of things. And now I met the guy who could break down the spiritual side. And the guy was an ex-pro um, NBA um, basketball player. Okay. And so that was like the thing that I was like, right, I'm in it now. But then I look around the room, and... One, people are doing incredible, you know, because there was a couple of, like, seasoned yoga people in the room. And some of them are doing some incredible stuff with their bodies I've never seen before. Like, you know, when you go to a yoga class and there's advanced people in there doing, like, the crazy stuff, you're like, and you've never seen that before? Mm. You don't have a relationship with your own body. You're just like, I didn't even know a person's leg could get that high. Yeah, yeah. So I look around the room and the two things strike me. One, everyone in this room can afford to be here. Two, there's not enough people in this room that look like me. Thirdly, I work with some kids that when they wake up in the morning 
as soon as they open their eyes, they're angry. They could really do with some yoga practice in their life. <laughs> but if I send them to a yoga studio, they're not going to go again. I need to become a yoga teacher. And at that moment, I was like, you know what? I'm going to retrain to become a yoga teacher. All my friends were like, you are crazy. Because, like, <laughs> I couldn't touch my toes. Like, I couldn't. <laughs> like, I was still running, but I just didn't have the relationship with the body. I'm having this super stressful job that I'm in. And you know what? That was just a magic moment. And, you know, yoga's had a bigger impact on my life than running has. And running's had an amazing impact on my life. But the two of them together, you just feel like a superhero as soon as you open your eyes. It's, like, it's amazing. Yeah, that, that, I went once to, um, I have a YMCA down the block from where I live. And so people are talking about stretching and doing all this stuff. And I said, I would go to this class. <clears throat> I walk in, I'm, I'm the only black guy in the class. Not that that matters, but you go in there, and it's a, they're, they're, they're mostly women, older, mm-hmm. and um, I'm like, okay, how hard could it be? You know, and so I realized how hard it could be. I'm like, I can't, it's like, this is, this is not, this is not easy. I, I gained a lot of respect for what people do. I see the mats, I'm like, oh man, the, the loose pants, you know, there's going to be some music in there. And I walked out of there feeling like, dang on, I, I, I was ashamed, man. I felt like I'm yeah. really tight, man. This is not, <laughs> I'm not as loose as I thought I, I was. I mean, I mean, the thing about running is it hammers your body. Mm-hmm. You know, running hammers your body and, you know, it tightens your hamstrings. And it, it's not a good look. Yeah. You know, so you have to counteract it something. But the main thing which is really interesting is a lot of people, when they go to these classes for the first time, all they're thinking about is, wow, I couldn't do that. Move. Mm-hmm. And everyone else could. As opposed to, how has this yoga practice made me feel inside? Yeah. You know? And that's one of the things I try and, you know, really trying to get ahead of my beginners. It's like, it's not about being able to do all the moves. It's about how does this whole experience make you feel inside? If it makes you feel good, mm-hmm. come back. Yeah. Because you can work on the moves. Is it really? How do you keep evolving? I mean, it's it's really simple. I'm not good at any one thing. And so, you know, because I'm not good at any one thing, what happens, I can take it to its limit and then I have to switch up and come with something new. You know, and I'm, uh, you know, I was just surrounded by people as a kid where it was like they could do lots of stuff they know they could draw they could skate they could do graph mm-hmm. they could break dance do you mean it's like and so it's just been this thing in my head and my, you know, my mom's like that as well it's just like she's always been into like different things and I think it's I remember seeing a documentary on Miles Davis when I was a kid mm-hmm. and it really struck me it was like you know he was smashing the like jazz he was killing it and then suddenly he's like, you know, he goes and records like in a silent way. And just, you know, and then he's like literally sits in the room and is like, right, you're getting sacked. I'm sacking you, sacking you. <laughs> you and you, you young guys. Yeah, you're the hot ones. Come with me. Mm-hmm. And then every couple of years, you're like, oh, you're not really carrying a swing anymore. So I'm swapping you for this dude. You know, like you, I'm loaning you. Like, it's crazy. And that had a real impact on me, this idea of like surrounding yourself with younger energy. People are hungry. People who are better at doing something than you. And always stay curious as well. Mm-hmm. Because the thing about as well is like when you get in music, you know, you can get really comfortable. You know, and it all becomes this little box where you're just hanging out with music people and talking about music all the time and you're immersed in this world. And so coming out of it was like, you know, it was really this idea of like, right, you had a really big bite of the cherry. You know, you had it good, man. Like, you know, you didn't even really, like, enjoy the now. You know, when you're in that world, all you're thinking the next record. The next record. Is that going to sell more than the previous record? Is the next DJ set going to be a bigger banger? That's that a vicious good? cycle, man. That's it's a very vicious cycle. You know what I mean? But you're in that world where everyone's chasing the same thing. So stepping out of it and kind of being given a second chance to run them through, I was just like, right, you know what? Come we go. Let's, let's get into it. Now, did you see it? Um, when, when you started, did, did, did it start out with this intent to, to grow it to where it was and see the impact that it would have across no. the world? No, definitely not. 
I basically started running through because I wanted to basically, as I said before, those were the boxes I wanted to tick. I started with five people. I literally rang five of my friends and photographer because I was like, you know, no one's going to believe that we're doing this stuff, so I need someone to take a picture. There was a guy who was a dancer because I was like, we don't know, like, we don't know any stuff of our bodies, so we need to get someone who knows. One guy who'd run, you know, a couple of marathons before, um, a music guy because I was like, you know, we need some good music to run with, and then yeah, and then like, but you, you were know, a DJ. So, but you were, a, but you were the DJ. Yeah, but I was a DJ, but I was like, you know, I wasn't making music that you could run to. Gotcha. I needed someone who could basically, you know, could inject that. I think it t- it's, it says something about your um about you as an individual, your 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 character, and just your your, your thought process to recognize. I don't have to to know it all. No, no I'm going to surround myself with 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 those people with mm. that can that, that can supplement. You know, exactly. It's all, I mean, and that all comes from warehouse culture. So I grew up. I was a teenager in the in the eighties. In the late eighties, you know, if you were black, you weren't getting into a club. You know, so you basically go to a club. Like clubs would have quotas of the amount of black people they would allow in. Like the popular clubs would be like, okay. We've had our 40% in now. Sorry, lads. You know, and they pick some excuse for you not to be allowed in. You know, the reality of like going, trying to get into a West End club in the 80s in the UK. Mm-hmm. So what people started to do is they started to kind of find abandoned warehouses, you know, and hold parties in there. And the whole warehouse party scene. And the warehouse party scene, basically, what that did is it suddenly brought, you know, the posh kids in with the roughnecks, you know, the gay community started to, you know, came in, you know, the reggae men was coming in because they had the sound system, so, you know, you know, and then suddenly the hip-hop people were coming in, and suddenly there are all these different worlds that are coming together, you know, in one space. And that had such a profound impact on me that at the heart of everything that I've ever done in my life, it's always been about community and bringing people together. Because those are my happiest times mm-hmm. when you like you go to a place that you you had no idea how you were going to get there, you had no idea where it was, but all you knew was that the music was going to be good and that there were going to be like-minded people there, and you'd probably end up at someone's house in some area you'd never been to, having an experience where people weren't judging you by the color of your skin, but were just like you got good energy, I'm vibing with you, and it wasn't about class as well because. England is a very class-driven place. So mm-hmm. prior to that, the classes weren't really mixing. So now you've got the music that's bringing people in together, you know, and it was an amazing time, and it just stuck with me. So the first thing I did, you know, was actually, I, I, I put together this poetry collective called the Urban Poets Society. Okay. And that was basically, you know, because I wanted to rap, mm-hmm. but I'm from the UK, and it's, you know, 91, and no one's trying to hear a UK rapper. You know, there was a handful of people. Mm-hmm. So I was like, right, I want to get on stage because I've got something to say. Because Public Enemy came to London in the, in the, like, 87, I think. London changed that day. Like, the day after, London was very different. Wow. Like, literally. The Def, the Def Jam tour, I think it was the first time they came was LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy. Second time was... Public Enemy, Edo Cool J, Eric B and Rakim. Mm-hmm. And they had this like UK rapper called um, Derek B was there. Like, Edo Cool J headlined. And dude, like, the next day, London changed. Mm. Because basically, it was like, one, it was just suddenly, it was like, no one had ever really stood on the stage in the UK and spoken about, you know, black politics in that way before to an audience that was mixed. So suddenly, battle lines came in, you know, people really began questioning their involvement in music. Some people turned Muslim the day after, like militant, day after. Like they literally went from shell toes, triple fat goose, <laughs> sort of man, it was all like prayer beads and like, you know, selling the final call. Oh you know. my God. So Islam became huge. And, you know, London changed. And I literally, like, you know, the day after I, I, you know, I saw Public Enemy, 
I went to school the next day. The first person that says anything remotely racist to me bought it. <laughs> was, you know what? I'm not having it because Chuck D. <laughs> he said. <laughs> so, I like that's all had such an impact on me. It was just like, like I told my mum I was going to the theatre. Mm-hmm. That was the only way I could get it to let me go. And you know, and it was a fear, it was a theatre show that I saw. When S one Ws came out, it was just like, was like, oh my god, this is crazy. Yes. And then Cool J came out, mm-hmm. take that flipped open, he walked it out, bare chested, big gold chain, Kangol, radio, it was like it was nuts. And then Rakim came out and it was like at that point, you'd heard Rakim records, but you had no idea what he looked like. Yeah. You know. So how were you getting the records? How were you getting the music then? Before, because, before you were tour. You always could get music in the UK because we had a plethora of record shops. Okay. That specialised in importing music. And we had pirate radio. And the pirate radio thing, the illegal radio was really big. Mm-hmm. And so basically there was this whole music scene that was around, you know. And, you know, that was, it was like, you know, it was really interesting times. But that changed. And then ecstasy came. 89, ecstasy dropped, like literally load of dudes, football, hooligan, fighting dudes, went to Ibiza, found ecstasy, Balearic music, came back, then London changed again. Because now all of a sudden it was like, you know, people all peeled up and it was all like, everyone loves you now. Like the same racists who basically would be chasing you for the streets were now trying to hug you in the club. Mm. And that all changed again. You know, and all of that, you know, so for me, one of the urban poet society it was all about bringing people together. I like, I like bringing people together and creating and maintaining and activating communities. You know, because it's easy to activate a community because you can just throw money at it. Yeah, it's cool to maintain it, and it's difficult to nurture it. Yeah, and that's be fine. We're running. So we run them literally. Like, you know, we were lucky because when we dropped, it was MySpace time. You know, and then when Twitter came. That's when it just sparked. But suddenly it was like, you could write about, what people started to notice about me is like, this guy runs, but he's not boring. He still collects records. He still DJs. still goes to the club. Mm-hmm. He still buys dorms. He still buys trainers. He's still cool. The only thing that, he just, he runs. Now, what are, what are dorms? Are those sneakers? Dorms. Dorms. Yeah, because you, you're very stylish. You're, you're, you're modest today, but I'm like, okay. This is yeah, this yeah, is yeah, this yeah. is not the, this is not the this is not this is you would not think like yo who is this guy wait a second is it yeah, just we, out of a magazine that's that's is that the cover of GQ who is that on there <laughs> yeah we're like, teaching today so like I just got back you know so is someone dressing you or do do you need a stylist like um <clears throat> I had a mum that basically you know had was always pretty stylish and kind of dropped down on you but then also when you grow up in an area an era where you're where you're not, you're growing up with not very much money. Mm-hmm. It then becomes about dropping styles when you're outside. Yeah, but see, you cannot have, you cannot, you can have money and still not have any any style. That's true, but that, <laughs> but when you come into style from not having money, mm-hmm. learn how to make basic things work. Yeah. For you, and then obviously, you know, as time goes on, you just find your. Stop! But my my kids think I'm like the craziest dressed person I've ever met in their life. So. <laughs> no, it's 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 it's, it's sharp. But you you didn't mention you didn't mention sneakers. You didn't mention your 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 um your, your sneaker collection. I'm a big sneaker collector, but I'm retired. You've retired? Yeah, now I'm like <laughs> odd pair, but like it got out of hand. Because again, when you start traveling and you're making that disposable DJ money, it gets wild. You know, you're you're. You're, you know, you're f- like, because we were so deeply into it where it was like, it starts with you sending your aunt, your African aunties to New York. You've always got one auntie who lives in, who goes to New York. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, okay, can you get me Air Jordans? And they would go and come back with some other thing that wasn't Air Jordans at all. <laughs> so different that you'd rock it and people would be like, what are those? You'd be like, I don't know. Do <laughs> I mean? don't know. Auntie brought them back from New York. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then... You know, obviously, start DJing, and then you know when we started, the, you know when we got our big, you know, the record deals. So the funny thing is, like, so Nigo from Bathing Ape, mm-hmm. I know him from when he was selling T-shirts out of a box. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Same Supreme, 
I remember when they first started, the label that we were on, you know, we had this relationship, Futura was doing all the artwork. So basically, we had these weird connections to all these, like, the Supreme and Union and Triple Five Soul and blah, 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 and, you know. So it's, Is that you the know, name of the font, Futura, also? The Supreme? That is Futura, is that the name of the font also? Um, I don't know if he's named after the font, you know. That's a really good question. Maybe he is. I, I think that might be the font. Maybe. I've never asked him that. That's a good one. I think, that, I think that's the... I, 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 now that you mentioned it, and I'm thinking of the font, I'm like, that, that, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's a similarity to the Supreme um, logo, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. You're yeah, quite... So, yeah, I mean, so the trainer thing was just like, had always been to, into it as a kid. Mm-hmm. Because, so, as far as we knew, when hip-hop arrived, if you were into hip-hop, you had to wear fresh, fresh, fresh trainers. You know, and they were hard to get. And so once we discovered that, hold on a minute, you know, because we didn't know that there was colors that colorways that would come out in the US, in New York, that were so different from the colorways in California, that were different from the colorways that came out in Europe. Once we found that out, it was like, oh, okay, now we're going to start going on some adventures. I mean, I, I used to go on some deep adventures digging for, for trainers. <laughs> I in some warehouses where like I found this place in the Bronx that was like so crazy that guy had so much heat it was ridiculous mm. you know and so but now you know I kind of Instagram made me retire <laughs> because what happens on Instagram is like you know when you're someone my age and you post up a pair like an original pair of shoes mm. rarely there's going to be some 12 year old who's going to be like ah, they're fake yeah the reason why he thinks they're fake is because they don't look the same as the reissue. Yeah, so you you posted this pair that the I guess the 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 like yo know, these have went through the soles were they, they were, were covered apart. Yeah. I'm like yeah, and this is it. I'm not posting anymore. This is just this. This is it. For those of you who don't think that they're not real, yeah, here they are. These are the original. Oh, the glue God. coming God. apart. God. They've seen some time. <laughs> But the thing what happens when you've got that, you know, a big collection is you forget what you've got, you know, unless you're hyperly organized, which I'm not. And then what happens is you find a pair that you really want to wear and you open them up and they fall apart in your hands because you've had them so long. Yeah, you know, they've been sitting in the box for 15, 20 years. So I was just like, actually, there are other things I'd rather spend my money on because coming back to yoga again, one of the biggest things that I took away from it is the idea that as a child depending on the area where you grow up, you can start to put on masks at a very early age. And suddenly, having material things starts to define you. It's like, oh, that guy's fresh because he's got, you know, Jordans on. He's got a goal, you know what I mean? He's got a, he drives a fast car, so he's better than me. In order for me to be, to earn his respect or be his equal or be better than him, I have to outdo him. Yeah. And so what I realise is kind of like, you know, the trainers, the records, the Star Wars collection, the like, you know, all this stuff, it's just stuff that you accumulate because when you can't afford it or you're denied it as a kid, as soon as you get to the point where you can afford it, I call it the 50 pound man, the $50 man. It's like you can go to the shop, spend $50, not even think about it. As soon as you cross that threshold, you go, you just go crazy because now you can afford it. So you're buying things in excess, not because you really need them, because no one needs 400 pairs of trainers, you know. And my collection's not big. Like, you know, I'm rolling with dudes, they've got, like, 3,000 pairs, the way you're just like, you know, and I'm like, oh, you're crazy. So, so you, you, have more, you have more than 1,000 pairs of sneakers, though? Uh, not anymore. <laughs> I just get rid of loads of stuff. I give them away. I put them in boxes with messages in. I leave them out on the street. I give them away to the homeless people. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's like... So, wait, wait, you write messages and put them in a box? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just leave the box somewhere. There is, a, there is a woman who started a, um, a T-shirt company. And, that, well, that's how they used to deliver messages. And she puts it in a bottle. And when you, when you get the, uh, the T-shirt, it's in a bottle, a message inside of a bottle. Yeah. And so I have a, a, a in my kitchen, in the, other, in, in the real office, I have yeah. like lined up with sneakers and it's like, I got to do something with these sneakers because 
at some point, you know, you 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 collect them. You have a you have a a love for for sneakers. You start buying mm-hmm. them. At one point, I was doing reviews, and then it was just like, okay, I'm not doing the reviews any longer. Um, so what am I going to do with all these sneakers? And there, there's some yeah. that we sent off to Kenya. You know, somebody will have yeah. a sneaker drive. I'll bring some to them. I think they're having one. Bridge Runners is having one. Um, I think this mm-hmm. Tuesday. So you, but you can't. You're not bringing. You know. Bags. So I'm like, I gotta find something purposeful to do with them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's always people who need yeah. shoes, you know. But I just do really feel it's kind of like, how many pairs does someone need? Yeah, you know, and it's just kind of like, and then ultimately as well for me as well, as I got more and more into yoga, suddenly wearing that big clumpy, you know, shoe just didn't make sense. I want to feel in touch with the earth and my feet and like. You know, it's funny because I like, you know, I, on a Monday I teach a class in South London and I often will roll up in there in my yoga gear mm-hmm. and then just walk out and go and have breakfast. People look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, what are you wearing? <laughs> Is he on something now? Bring back yeah. Charlie Dark. <laughs> your feet, I thought you were the trainer dude. I'm like, yeah, you know. So what do you got on your feet now? What do you, what do you wear on your feet now? I wear a lot of um, Vivo um, barefoot shoes. Okay. Not the ones with the toes, but like this, you know. I got you. Perfect. Because comfortable shoes. Because like, you know, you get a lot of information from the earth. I know I sound like some super hippie dude, but like, you know, I think what it is about people that don't understand is like, obviously, great. It's great to have a sneaker collection. It's amazing. But the shoes mash up your feet. And so that may be cool 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, great. When you're 60, you might want to want your feet to be working as well as they could. So my advice I always say to people is, look, rock the Jordans, rock all of that, but just have a pair of shoes that you can relax in. Yeah. So your foot is not always, you know, because obviously if I'm walking around the street in a shoe that was made to survive a basketball season, it might be a bit stronger than my flip-flops. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, that's great. But you're just walking the street. You're not playing ball. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you need to move. I'm sure even Michael Jordan, when he was killing it, spent a large amount of time barefooted because I'm sure his feet were hurting. (laughs) To get up the shoes. (laughs) So what is next for Charlie Dark, man? Next for me is return to making music. Okay. So I'm working on um, a project at the moment. Kind of some stuff in meditation, ambient music. I'm working on some ambient stuff. At the okay, that would so be tied know, that you that that you'll be able to play in the studio while while the yoga is. Yeah, playing the studio, some stuff in live performance, like using a lot of modular synths. I've kind of I realised about two years ago that I was spending a lot of time on the laptop, and then also when I was making music, I was spending a lot of time looking at a laptop, and I suddenly thought to myself, I want to detach myself from this. So I got into using modular simps, you know, and building my own simps and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of led me down the path of listening to more ambient music, you know, and some really interesting people out there. A lot of brothers in that scene as well doing some really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and that's leading me into kind of like back into jazz, you know, and particularly into impro- you know, improvised jazz and free jazz and kind of, you know, just exploring that and just trying to get into music, you know, because the thing is what I realised, like, whereas most, a lot of people from my era who come from the music industry are like, ah, oh, it's not like the old days and the kids. Yeah, it's stuff sound uh, bitter in. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you do realise with, like, Apple Music, Spotify, it's like you've got every record shop in the world in your house. You can, like, you know, there's all this music that you have never heard and will never, ever hear, but now you can. Mm-hmm. So go digging. The only difference is now you don't get paper cuts and you're not dodging rats in the basement. You know? <laughs> like, go dig for the comfort of your house. And when you find that thing, then go and find it. It's like a little step that's come in between the actual going to go and dig. It's like, now you can dig in your house. Yeah. Let's see how good your collection is now because like, you know what I mean? It's like, now we all got the tools. Let's see what you're finding. I love yeah. finding obscure things on Spotify where people are like, I didn't even know that was on there. It's like, Mm. yeah so that's you know that's what's next but really you know I wake up to sunshine I'm happy 
you know, running's going well, yoga's going well, running's probably along, kids are healthy, life is cool. Like, you know what, I'm, I'm, like, I'm just enjoying, I think a lot of times we work so hard for this future that we don't recognize when it arrives. Yeah, you forget about what's going on right now. We don't enjoy it now. My thing is, it's like, tomorrow's not guaranteed. You know, so, let me just enjoy it now. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why, you know, it's like, you know, connecting with people like yourself, like Instagram is really important because it's like, I just think to myself, that is so wild that I'm old enough to remember when there was one person in the street with a telephone. And it was up to no good <laughs> if you had a phone, right? Yeah, only one person on the phone, or the phone would have a lock on. Yeah. You'd be like begging your parents to take the lock off. And really? now, not only can I call you, but I can see you. Yeah. Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. The Jetsons is here. The Jetsons we're is all, here. Uh, we're all waiting for the flying car. Yeah. The flying car isn't here yet, but there's some other stuff that's here. Let us just use that and embrace that, you know? Definitely, definitely, man. So th- th- there's going to be a project, a, um, a spoken word project coming out from you that can yeah, get you poetry? Yeah. Yeah, all of this, the spoken word, the ambient, the modern sim, is all one project. Okay. It's coming out, and it's like, yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah, really. man, you, you're definitely a, a, a trailblazer, man. I, I certainly respect your time, man. Um, so are you. you. You were doing things that people didn't recognize beforehand, man. And before it was like, you know, you're yeah. talking about getting sponsors and, and, and brands to... You know, to, to, to recognize what you're doing and being an influence and all that. This is this was you were doing this before it was really yeah, popular. Before it you know what yeah. I mean? Before it was even a thing. It was just but I don't know what so when, when I think about like what was in this guy's mind, what was he thinking? That's 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 what I find fascinating. It's it's really, really, really simple. I was working in education mm-hmm. and what I was realizing I'd already had a relationship with brands from when I was like in the music industry, you know, but that was when it was just the beginnings of this whole kind of influencer thing. So, you know, mid to late nineties, Supreme would send you a box of t-shirts, Nigo, you know, I used to get so much bathing aid that I used to try and give away to my friends and my friends, my black friends would be like, I'm not wearing it. It's got a monkey on the front, you know? Um, so I had this relationship with brands, but then when I started doing Run Them, I realized a really important thing. Relying on government funding requires the jumping through of hoops and the adhering to rules and regulations that don't work for everybody. You know, and the type of people that I wanted to work with, it was like, we can't do these projects anymore where you come into a kid's life for a week and you might blow their mind with something and then you say, all right, mate, off you go. And then you can't, you know, and then we send them off on their way. And I was just like, you know what, that's kind of, that's a bit dangerous, actually. Yeah. To show someone behind the, you know, the Wizard of Oz curtain and then close it down. So I was like, look, we need to find some people who basically have got big pockets and have got a lot of money and and they're not, they just want to spend it. They don't really want to require you to basically report to them how you spent the money or deliver 10 workshops afterwards. So... At that time, I was like, right, you know who's got that money? Sports brands. Why? Because the Olympics are coming. And everyone's trying to basically, every sports brand is trying to build community in time for the Olympics. Four years before the Olympics, I was like, right, let's go. And so, you know, all we had a relationship with Nike anyway. But I realized that they wanted to do more stuff in the community. And they were opening a space up in um, Shoreditch. Like, a, you know, a, you know, a, I can't remember what they used to call them, like a stadium space. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, I don't want any money. This is where people mess up with brands is the first thing they do when they speak to a brand is they ask for money. They come with their hands out. Eating <laughs> in the back foot. Mm-hmm. I was like, look, you know what? I've had money because I made money in the 90s in the music industry. Like, no one's going to be able to pay me more money than what we were making then when the tax man didn't even know what a DJ was. Like, do you mean? So I was like, right. I don't need money, I need space. I need a regular space that's safe, warm, heated, where my young people can come down. We know we know it's not going to disappear, after, you know, because the funding goes, it's going to be there until those young people don't want to work with us anymore. And that's how the brand relationship began. But then what I realised is, like, hold on a minute, it's like, 
This is like when you're a DJ and the Mozart says, I'll pay you £400 a DJ and you can bring all the other DJs. And you're thinking to yourself, amazing, brilliant, great. Like, I'm getting paid £400 to DJ in the club and, and my mate's getting, you know, he's getting 100 and I'm getting, I'm splitting the money. Mm-hmm. But then you're forgetting the bar. That's you're not getting the bar yeah. or any of the money on the door. Yeah. So actually, hold on a minute. We need to renegotiate this relationship. Yeah. <laughs> no. So what happens when you go to renegotiate a relationship is the first thing that people are going to ask you, or any clever person is going to ask you, is how much are you actually worth? Because everyone wants to work with a brand. But people have got no idea how much they're worth. So are you worth a free pair of trainers? Or are you worth a retainer? You don't know. Mm-hmm. You're just like, I just want to tell my friends that I work with Nike or Adidas or Assets or whoever it is. Because that's kudos in the hood. Because we've come from a time when you're going to your mum and you're like, mum, can you get me the Air Jordans? And she's like, they cost X amount. Do you want to eat this week or have fly kicks? Mm-hmm. You eat, don't you? You're not having the kicks. But now you're getting a relationship where you're getting kicks for free. So you think, oh man, this is I'm great. Alive. And, <laughs> all right. And then you also feel, me and Phil Knight are like this. And you and Phil Knight are not like that. Mm-hmm. Because you're far removed from the level that he's on. So actually, you don't have a relationship with a brand. You have a relationship with a person who works at the brand. And that's the thing that you need to nurture. You know? And so, you know, along the way, made a load of mistakes and then learned some lessons and kind of began to wise up. And then at some point, I suddenly was like, hold on a minute. Like, there are all these people who were trying to get into this field or are in this field who were getting shafted. Mm-hmm. I need to basically start telling people some, you know, some of the pitfalls and the things that go on and, and give people some help. And that, again, is something that, you know, is coming. School of Dark podcast is going to be coming soon. And we're going to start breaking all this stuff down. So say it again, man. This is an exclusive. Is this an exclusive? Did you mention this before? If, if, this, no, if, this this if you haven't mentioned it before, you got to say it like it's an exclusive, man. Exclusive! <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a bomb, but... I, after the editing process, I'm going to drop a bomb. This is an exclusive, right? Exclusive! <laughs> Put that in there. Yeah. yeah, so basically, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, I want to basically have a school, mm-hmm. and that, whether it's virtual, online, or it's a, a gathering that people come together, where we actually break down, you know, some of the stuff that you need to know if you are kind of trying to work with a brand. But it's actually not even about working the brand. It's about knowing your own self-worth as a human being. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Like, you know, the lessons that you learn can be applied in life. I think that's, I think that's one of the things that, um, that, that, that attracted me to you is just the, it's the transparency. It's the, you're you're relatable and people, people could, you, like I grew up um, in in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Fat Five Freddy lived right around the corner. Um, from me, and I wanted to. Uh, I found myself working in a, in a dropout prevention program with kids, mm-hmm. and so that's always been in in my you know part of me. You know, what I mean, I had a I had an opportunity to work with with a, um, with a principal in Brooklyn. Um, it was like my modern day Joe Clark. I don't remember if you ever seen that movie, and <clears throat> so that that's been my thing. And then it was like. You switch from, I mean, I made the switch from education and started working in retail management. Mm. Young people and still helping people was still a part of me. But in retail management, it's about numbers. What's this metric? We got to hit this metric. We got to get this. We're doing this to get this bonus. But I always still maintain having a heart for people. And I think that's um, that's what's brought me back to even thinking about running and and. Mm. Yeah just wanting to be able to give back and this is sort of my way of being able to give back and be able to connect with people who can relate with young people and that, I think that's important because um, yeah, yeah I, don't I think, think doing is amazing like I love it mm-hmm. I think I it's great it. I actually I think it's a really interesting take that you have on the whole fitness and health and self work yeah. I, 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 I don't have it all figured out man but I do know what I what I what I like I do know um, I, I enjoy transparency um a little, a little humor, a little music, art, you know. So there, there are things that you, you can see, and it's like I don't have to know it all, but I do know, you know, this is a resource. This person is a resource, yeah, and yeah. you can reach out to somebody or 
put point somebody in that direction. I don't have to be, you know, the yeah. The, you never know who you're going to inspire as well. Yeah. So That's definitely, man. So I, yeah. I I certainly appreciate you taking your time, man. No problem. Apologies that it took so long. No, man. It's all good. Well worth right. the wait, man. Well worth yeah. the wait. I mean, I stay awesome. You Keep in touch. Definitely. I mean, let's try and do something together. Where are you based now? I'm in Bridgeport, Connecticut, man. Okay. I got to get right. out to... Um, I want to... Uh, that, that, when I heard that crazy adventure, I was like, man, well, I'm not sailing across the Atlantic, but I would like to... Um, I would say, yeah, man, it would be nice to do a documentary of all of these different run crews. And one day I want to, I want to drive across the U.S., you know, and, and interview everybody from, you know, from the 50 states. So... We'll, we'll see how that 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 pans out, man. But yeah, that that's that's for another episode. Cool. Charlie, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much. No problem, my brother. Take care. All righty. Bye bye. See you later. Take care.